Welcome to the Shine Within Podcast. I'm your host, Gina Kunarian, and I am so grateful that you are here. I'm a wife, mother of three boys, certified massage therapist, and an alcohol-free sobriety coach who helps driven women break through their alcohol dependency without the traditional 12-step program. Each week, I will bring you inspiring guests with focus on mindset, health, and spirituality, providing you the tips and tools to help you create unshakable confidence, clarity, and energy so you can unleash your creative potential and live the life of your dreams alcohol-free. So tune in for some fun, and if you are ready to shine, welcome. Hello, beautiful listeners. I have some exhilarating news that I'm thrilled to share with you all. Are you ready to ignite that inner spark of confidence and embrace a life brimming with vitality? Whether you're pondering a life without alcohol, taking those first empowering steps into sobriety, or looking for rejuvenation post-alcohol, I have the perfect occasion lined up for you. So mark your calendars for September 25th at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and prepare to dive into a transformative day with my Revive and Thrive Academy. This is the haven for incredible women just like you, eager to rediscover and celebrate their true selves beyond the bottle. And in honor of National Recovery Month, this day promises to be nothing short of spectacular. As always, I will be right by your side, cheering you on and guiding you every step of the way. Now, for those tantalizing details and updates on what's in store, make sure you follow me on Instagram at shine underscore Gina Kunarian, or you can find me on Facebook. I promise you, you won't want to miss out on the buzz and behind the scenes peaks. Don't forget to check the show notes to find a link where you can follow me. Today, we are about to embark on the journey of introspection, truth, and resilience. Our guest, Judy Foreman, will guide us through her poignant story, unraveling layers of family trauma and the path to self-discovery and love. If you've ever felt trapped in the shadows of your past, this episode is your beacon of hope. So tune in, open your hearts, and let's navigate the roadmap of healing together. Welcome back to the Shine Within podcast. I have here Judy Foreman, an acclaimed author, has penned several notable books. Among them are A Nation in Pain, The Global Pain Crisis, and Exercise is Medicine, all brought to you by the Oxford University Press. She ventured into the world of fiction with her novel, it's acronym C-R-I-S-P-R-D in 2022, courtesy of Skyhorse. <laughs> okay, I wanted to make sure. I'm like, oh, I better not say the wrong thing. <laughs> courtesy of Skyhorse Publishing and shared personal insights in her new memoir, Let the More Loving One Be Me, under the banner of She Writes Press. For over two decades, Judy's journalistic prowess has showcased as a staff writer at the Boston Globe. Many of those years saw her in the role of a health columnist, with her impactful columns being featured in prominent publications like Los Angeles Times, Dallas Morning News, and Baltimore Sun, just to name a few. An alumna of Wellesley College, Judy graduated Phi Beta Kappa in 1966, subsequently dedicating three years to the Peace Corps in Brazil. She further enriched her academic credentials with a master's degree from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Judy's affiliations are numerous and distinguished. She has served as a lecturer on medicine and fellow in the medical ethics at Harvard Medical School, a night science journalism fellow at MIT, 
and was a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandis. <laughs> adding, adding to her versatility, Judy hosted a popular weekly call in radio show on Health Talk. Com. A testament to her journalistic excellence, Judy holds over 50 journalism accolades. Notably, she received the prestigious 1998 George Foster Peabody Award for co-penning a heart-wrenching video documentary about a young woman's battle with breast cancer. Additionally, her book, A Nation in Pain, earned her the 2015 Science and Society Award from the National Association of Science Writers. Wow, Judy, thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. You accomplished, you accomplished so much here. And uh, wow, yeah. I'm, it's just an honor to have you on my show today. And I, I was just talking to you earlier about the new book that was just published yesterday. And I was sharing with you that I had some trauma in my life. I had a stepfather, father figure, you know, um, that sexually abused me. Now, nobody knew, not even my mother, and it was kept secret for so many years. Now, this happened from the ages of six to 12 years old. And then it came out finally during an intervention meeting with like uh, all my siblings and my mom was there and they wanted to know what was wrong with me. Why am I misbehaving so much? Why am I doing drugs? Why was I drinking alcohol so much? And I said, well, probably the reason why I'm like this and so destructive is because I was abused when I was a little girl. And then everyone was like silent and didn't know what to say. And then, then I was even questioned by my mom uh, a little bit further. And I'm just like, well, I just told her everything. But for some reason, she still didn't believe me quite. And I was very hurtful. So I would love for you just to share a little bit about your book, um, because I know you've had this career in like health journalism, covering topics on like societal impact. But what prompted the transition from these subjects to penning such an intimate memoir about your life? Well, <laughs> that's quite a uh, quite a question. Um, yeah, it was definitely a departure from what I had been writing all along, which was basically science and medicine. Um, and I didn't set out to write a book. I'm I'm in this organization is one of the lifelong learning things for people a little bit later in life than you are. Uh, it's at Harvard, the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement, and I took a course in memoir writing. And I loved it. And I kept going week after week, year after year. And pretty soon I had a whole collection of memoirs. Some were serious, like the one about my father's abusiveness. Um, some were hilarious. Some were uh, romantic. Some were kind of scientific. Some were about my journalism career. So it's all over the place. But I decided to put them together uh, in one book. And I guess the theme that you could say unites it all is kind of a search for the truth, the truth of what happened in my family. And as a journalist, a search for truth on many issues, including scientific truth. Um, so it just kind of fell together. Well, it didn't really fall together. I put it together with some thought and effort. But yeah, it was kind of um, a story of the emerging of a person after a very destructive family. Maybe not destructive in the same way as yours, but somewhat similar. I'm actually curious about yours, too. <clears throat> yeah, so I was sharing with you that I am just starting to write a book because I had all these messages saying, write books, write books. Everybody was like watching these videos, make sure you write a book. And I'm like, are they talking to me? <laughs> and I felt that, um, yes, it, it was a very traumatic scenario. Uh, I didn't really know what I was going through because I, like I said, I was six years old, like at six, you, you don't know what is like really a good touch and what, what you're supposed to be doing. 
but those lewd acts and everything uh and having to revisit that in my writing it was just like like wow how do I remember all like every like detail to the detail even and it was something that I've always wanted to like forget and ignore but I've learned so much about how to well now that I'm sober I've been sober about six years I turn to alcohol to as my comfort to make me feel better you know to numb myself and I was getting into these horrible relationships I was just not myself and it wasn't until I stopped drinking alcohol that I was like okay who is Gina inside you know because who who is this beautiful soul that is ready ready to come out finally after 30 something years later <laughs> and um but she's still ready to come out and so I had to do a lot of work I got a coach I got a mentor and I started going to church like I, that was a big one for me because I was never religious I was never spiritual and I just was really just meeting different people that just uplifted my spirit and just made me feel so good inside and from there I was just like okay learning meeting all these other women who are entrepreneurs and then I they said oh well you need to get into this you need to do this and so like I feel like because I stopped drinking and stopped numbing and how to face my my fear which and going back to whatever I was remembering back in my childhood, I had to face it. And then I had to move forward. And I'm noticing now as I'm writing, it's like therapy for me. And so and I think our messages need to be put out there, because a lot of people feel like they cannot have a they do not have a voice to say, hey, you know, I need help, or this is what happened to me, how do I heal that childhood trauma that we're going through? And so that's like a little bit of my story. <laughs> Um, but I feel so much better that it's come out and I can share it with everybody. That's great. That's great. Um, th there's something that I could read you more, but there's, there's something that I, what you said sort of makes me want to read. Do you have time for a little? Short? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Well, just, just for, uh, for, uh, starters, my father, uh, when I was a teenager, age 12, so a little older than you. He would come into my room every night uh, with just a T-shirt on. Um, and he would always say he just wanted to talk. But I thought it was going to be rape every single night of my adolescence. He never did touch me. But I grew up petrified. I didn't know any night it might be real rape. So it ended up being kind of a psychological rape. And I grew up terrified of him. Um, it's a miracle I'm not terrified of men in general. Uh, he was an alcoholic and um, very belligerent character, a lot like Trump, very narcissistic, very authoritarian, completely insensitive to other people. He was not a nice man. And he was uh, very successful. He was a vice president of one of this country's biggest companies, um, a real corporate bully. Um, and, uh, you know, from the outside, our family looked normal. We had money, we had food, we had a house, I had clothes, but it was not normal. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to realize how not, because whatever you're growing up with, that's normal. Um, <laughs> takes a long time to realize how screwed up it is. Um, so I just read a, a, read a little short thing nice. from my book, uh, Let the More Loving One Be Me, which people can get on Amazon. I have a friend whose brother sexually abused her every night. He warned, don't tell. For years, she didn't. When she finally did, her family fell apart. 
I have a friend who was raped by her live-in grandfather. She told no one for years. I have another friend whose stepfather, a former priest, shoved her head first into a snowbank when she was six, nearly suffocating her. He then raped her when she was 11. I have a friend who was first raped by her father, an MD and a university professor, when she was three. She's still grappling with it. She's 80 now. Her sister committed suicide. These are women whom I happen to know well. I did not seek them out to make a point. Only over time did I learn their stories and stories from other women friends too. Sexual violence defined as sexual activity in which consent is not obtained or freely given is widespread, affecting millions of people, most of them female. That's every year, according to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. CDC figures show that nearly one in five American women experiences completed or attempted rape during her mm -hmm. lifetime. Other data show that one in three female rape victims experience rape for the first time between 11 and 17 years of age. The worst thing I think is that more than 90% of child sexual abuse victims know their attackers. In fact, 78% of perpetrators were the parents of the victims. And that comes from the United States Department of Justice. That's wow. very sobering. Wow. Yeah, I didn't even know that. That is in the, from their own actual parent. Yeah, so yes. it's unfortunate. My father had passed away when I was a baby. And so my mom, she saw me like drawing pictures of like a family, you know, it was me and then a, a, a man and her and then my siblings you know and then so she thought like oh maybe she needs to have a father figure and it yeah I wish I really never did but you know what I I had to go through what I went through in order for myself to learn and then maybe I mean obviously heal from that and then help others who possibly are going through or have gone through that or still and going through trauma from that as well because a lot of people and I, I like a lot of my friends too same thing and then they go towards like drugs and they go towards alcohol because they don't know how to take it um I was gonna go ahead and ask you like your books such as exercise is medicine touch on like health and holistic well-being how has your understanding of health both both physical and emotional evolved through your personal experiences as shared in your new memoir um, well, I was a science writer and medical writer for the Boston Globe for many years. And um, that's, I mean, I sort of came at the health thing from a physical medical point of view. Um, my, my first book was about chronic pain, which uh, like sex abuse in a way is not recognized um, as much as it should be in this country. You know, 100 million Americans by official figures have some form of chronic pain, not totally debilitating in some cases, but a high percentage do have chronic pain. And a lot of them actually do need opioid drugs to control their pain. The problem is that uh, a lot of people end up, uh, not pain patients necessarily, but, but street users can end up abusing opioids. And there are, that's a horrendous problem. But an almost equally horrendous problem is chronic pain, which is not addressed sufficiently in this country. So we really have two epidemics, the opioid abuse and chronic pain. And because of the opioid abuse epidemic, a lot of genuine pain patients 
are under-medicated when they should be medicated more for their pain. Um, I came about writing about exercise uh, because I've been an exerciser my whole life. So my book, Exercise is Medicine, delves into a lot of the molecular biology, the basic underlying science of all the things that exercise does for different parts of the body, different hormones in the body, different molecules in the body. It's really as close to a miracle drug in quotes as um, you could find. It does so many good things. And yet many, many people do not exercise. There's a sort of an epidemic, if you will, of sedentary behavior. Many people do not exercise nearly enough, which is one of the reasons we have a huge problem with obesity in this country. We have a problem of sedentariness and obesity. And um, both of those are our medical disaster. Um, obesity leads to a lot of other things, including diabetes, heart disease, a lot of inflammatory conditions. Um, so we, we're really a medical mess in this country. Um, and that's why I wanted to write about exercise because that is a major way people can control their weight. And it's also kind of a bridge to your question about mental health. Exercise, you probably don't want to get this scientific in your program, but exercise uh, acts directly on the brain, which produces a chemical uh, that they call miracle growth for the brain. I won't give you the technical name for it, but but in my book, you can understand that it's it's they call it miracle growth for the brain. It literally makes new new neurons, new nerve cells grow, and it has a major positive effect on combating depression. Um, there is a lot of evidence that exercise can be as effective um, as some of the medications people take for depression. So it's huge. It's also an important way to ward off or to lower the risk for Alzheimer's. Um, mm -hmm. So it has huge effects for mood and thinking on the brain. Um, the book that you had trouble pronouncing. <laughs> yeah. is, Sorry about that. <laughs> that's okay. The book is called CRISPRD, C-R-I-S-P-R apostrophe D. And it's a medical thriller about CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, which is a fairly new, several years old uh, method for uh, changing our DNA in a, a major way that it can get rid of some um, bad genes and help put in a good version of those genes instead. Uh, there's already considerable evidence this can be used to potentially cure sickle cell anemia, which is a horrible disease that mostly affects black Americans. Mm. Um, it has been used already to treat a hereditary eye problem in a number of people. And it has huge potential for treating a lot of other inherited diseases. Um, so all that is, is part of what I've been interested in. And in terms of the mental health, you know, we were talking about sexual abuse and you mentioned alcoholism. One in five um, American adults grew up as a child in uh, an alcoholic family. Mm. And totally aside from sexual abuse, growing up in an alcohol fa alcoholic family is, is quite dangerous for people's mental health. You Often there's a lot of denial, denying that the alcoholic is there you get a sort of a warped sense of reality. There's a lot of anger that goes along in an alcoholic family. 
and children suffer and they suffer in, in silence and they grow up thinking that everybody goes home to an angry alcoholic father or an alcoholic mother who's lying on the couch all day drinking and swearing at her kids right. um you know and there's a, there's a lot of other mental health issues that people don't talk about sometimes there's suicide in a family and that affects the surviving adults and surviving children there are a lot of mental health problems in this country that aren't adequately treated and can be that's that's the the hard thing i mean you found solace and support in your church a lot of people find it through therapy um therapy costs money um it should be way more accessible than it is and you know for people who grew up with alcoholism there are a lot of good programs for adult children of alcoholics. Mm -hmm. So there is help out there. Sometimes it's hard to access. A lot of times it's expensive, um, but it's life-saving and very important for people. So I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. And you're so, long. you're so right about the exercise. You know, I have a, a lot of pain while I've been in many car accidents, not my fault. Uh, and I always been like hit from the back, <laughs> from the side. So a lot of whiplash and back injury. And I notice uh, over time, if I don't move my body, it starts hurting a lot. But once I start moving around, stretching, you know, even just walking, like walking in nature is so therapeutic for myself. I feel so much better. The only soreness I would get was just from walking just my muscle, you know, and I'm a massage therapist, I know how to get those knots out. <laughs> but it's so therapeutic and exercise. I think a lot of people are missing the physical activity in their day. We're not, we're humans, we're not meant to be sedentary, just in front of our computers all day. We need to move around, you know, we need to socialize, we need to do things, you know, whether it's gardening, that's exercise, cleaning the house, that's still exercise, <laughs> walking. I love doing videos at home too. You know, if I don't see my trainer, like we'll do something online and I'll be working out and it's so, it, I, you feel so much better. I, I always feel so much I better. Do. <laughs> so you it's a good point. That you, mentioned, you mentioned nature. A lot of people live cooped up in apartments in a mm -hmm. concrete city and nature counts too. And um, so many people don't have access to that. Um, but that's that can be very healing for people too. You're it's right. Like you've, done, like you've done a lot on a, in a lot of different paths to um, get yourself in a better place. Oh, yes, definitely. And what's what's funny is like I live in a city and um, downtown's not too far from here. It's just straight. But behind me is a bunch of mountains that is just like so beautiful that if I got want to escape from all of the chaos, it is chaotic over here. I can easily ha I have access to the hills right behind me. And so it's always nice That's to great. to get away and bring the kids. They love they love the outdoors. They have a beautiful playground and it's surrounded by trees, beautiful trees. And it's just like, oh. I feel like I'm always at home there. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. So you touched on the importance of therapy in your journey of healing. Uh, could you share how therapy has been instrumental in reshaping your worldview and personal growth? Oh, yeah. Um, it's been essential. I, I don't think I could have made the, done the journey that I'm, you know, I think you're never done, but um, it's been very, very important. And not just to acknowledge the the truth of what my father did but also as you you mentioned briefly when you had the intervention i don't know how that intervention happened and who started it and and what happened but you did say that your mother didn't quite believe you 
Um, that is very common. Mm -hmm. And um, in retrospect, now with the wisdom of age, which I have and you might have a little of, you look much younger than I am, um, in some ways, the more damaging aspect of growing up in the family I did was not my father's abuse. So my mother's denial and neglect mm -hmm. of um, what was going on. Um, where did she think her husband was going to half naked every night? Mm -hmm. And she had a teenage daughter. What did she think her husband was doing without his clothes on? Right. He was naked. He was half naked every night. Where did he? Where did she think he was going? When I finally told her about it, she said I should have told her, but I I was too scared. Um, I did not believe that she would intervene on my behalf. Um, I'm positive she would not have, because to have done so would have jeopardized her marriage. Mm -hmm. and that was the most important thing to her, even though she was married to a bad guy, a bad guy with money, but a bad guy. Um, and I think I know of several cases where uh, the daughters in a situation, like you were and I was, uh, were more harmed by their mother's lack of protection than what their father or stepfather or other male actually did um yeah one friend of mine uh it was her mother who set her up for being abused by her uncle ever since she was age four uh and the mother set it up why i have no idea um but i don't think the the mothers in these situations should get off scot-free um yeah. Sometimes, they were, sometimes the wives were being abused as well mm. and they were in fear one of my good friends uh she was married twice to very abusive guys uh, one of them a doctor um broke both her arms um you know sometimes if the the wife is is being abused she won't protect the the daughters or even the sons from abuse so it's really complicated it's not just it's not just the abuser per se that can be really harmful in a family. It's who is not protecting the children and sometimes not protecting herself. Right. I just wondered, right. are they just ob oblivious to it? Do they, do they not sense anything or do they just want to keep quiet? It's like, it confuses me. Like, you know, if you know your child's in danger, like as a mother myself, like I would be like on it, <laughs> you know, like this right. baffles me. It's denial and fear denial and fear yeah absolutely and yeah I was just thinking back I'm like how did she not know anything and I mean then the other siblings like my other siblings are very much older than me I have a brother that's you know 11 years older sister that's 10 years older than another brother that's seven years older so I was like the baby of the family and the one that was uh, was damaged I'd say yeah. <laughs> the black sheep of the family for no. sure <laughs> no you were not the black sheep yeah, no, that's what I always called myself before. I was like, oh, I'm the black sheep of the family. It's like, but you know, you're right. No, you're right. I actually have reframed my mind to not think that. It's like, you know what? I'm probably the one who's brought more awareness <laughs> to the family <laughs> than anything. Because now everyone is aware of everything and doing what I'm doing now, they probably see me like, whoa, who is this person now? It's like, yeah. So I feel like a lot of people who have who have gone through a lot of pain have like a lot of purpose in life. Yes. Yes. 
but you know it, it's amazing if your family can see you in this good way because telling the truth the reason a lot of abused children don't tell the truth or even you know teenagers is because it can destroy the family the truth can destroy the family mm -hmm. and probably should in my view you're right um, but it's it's dangerous to tell the truth but it's the only Ultimately, it's the only safe thing to do when you're in a safe enough place to tell it. Right, right. But it, it can mean disrupting the family. I mean, as the the examples that I read, um, you know, uh, the women were afraid that it would destroy the family. I was afraid, you know, to the extent that I even thought about or knew what it would be like. I mean, I couldn't tell the truth. I didn't even know that it was bad. I, mm -hmm. I just I felt awful. Um, but it took getting out of the family to think this is not right. This is not a normal family. But what you grow up with is all you know. Exactly. And it's like, who do you talk to? You know, you just talk to yourself. It's like you just bottle everything inside for so long. And then once it comes out, it's like, ah, you know, and you know, you're in you. It's dangerous to know, to admit, you know, it takes a lot of courage to face the truth as you were you were saying and as I did in therapy um right. you know I didn't realize how dangerous my family was until I got away from it enough emotionally and physically to be safe enough to look at it and I think that's true for a lot of people yes now having shared your story what message or insight do you hope readers especially those who have experienced trauma will take away from your book well, I hope people do get the book. Um, and um, also it's, it has a very hopeful message. If you read the book, you'll you'll see that um, I have actually been extremely lucky in love and in work, which are the two things that Freud said are the most important in life. And I completely agree with that. Um, I've I'm on my third marriage. The first one ended in divorce, but it was a very amicable divorce. We we just we just got married too young. There was no really lasting animosity. Uh, my second husband was great, and he died of cancer um, mm. a long time ago, about 17 years ago. Um, and before he died, he wrote a letter um, urging me to remarry if I had the chance. And he was it was really like one good man suggesting that I find another good man, which was a huge gift to me. And I did. I am now happily married for the third time uh, to a wonderful man. Um, so I think that's really an important message for your listeners and your followers, because despite what I grew up with, I've managed in large part through my own emotional work and in introspection and writings and therapy to know how to pick good men and to you know learn how to trust trust and be available for more intimacy than I would have ever been capable of before and in my work as a journalist um, journalism basically is about telling the finding the truth and telling the truth and I think the truth is the most important thing and journalism is really a safeguard against uh all those lies telling the truth is really immensely important and i think journalists who who do that are really noble and it, it's a very i feel it's a very noble profession 
and that you know in in both my personal life and professional life truth turns out to be a really driving force yes this is that the truth shall set you free. <laughs> yeah. And that's what Alan says, but first it will make you miserable. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> but it does set you free. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, where yeah. can our listeners follow you or buy your books? I know you had mentioned Amazon before. Buy my book. It's called Let the More Loving One Be Me. There's a picture of it with my little notes. <laughs> it's on Amazon. You can also get it through my website which is judyforman.com. And people often spell my name wrong, so I'll spell it. J-U-D-Y-F as in Frank, O-R-E-M-A-N.com. Don't forget the E. <laughs> now, everybody forgets it, and then I don't get the emails. So uh, yeah, I have a very nice website that you mentioned at the beginning. Um, people can also get it there. And also there are a number of um, my, uh, I had a book presentation last night and that's going to be up on YouTube soon. So you can um, probably by tomorrow. So you can also find out about it that way. Oh, wonderful. Yes, I'm looking forward to your book. It just came out yesterday. So yes. Brand <laughs> well, thank, new. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Judy. I appreciate you. Thank you. And more power to you too. Um, I'm inspired by you. Oh, thank you so much. From the bottom of my heart, thank you to everyone who has graced me with a five-star review. If you haven't had the chance yet, it's never too late to share your insights. It's because of each one of you that my podcast has soared to BuzzFeed's acclaimed Best Women's Sobriety Podcast list. As a special treat, I am ecstatic to present my latest offering, the Overcoming Challenges mini course. We all face life's hiccups, and this course is meticulously crafted to hand you the tools to rise above each one. It's a small investment for lifelong skills. But wait, there's more. I have two exclusive gifts just for my listeners. For those embarking on or curious about their sobriety journey, immerse yourself with a transformative seven-day challenge, an ideal starting point. Additionally, my six-step blueprint to an alcohol-free life is yours to explore. I divulge the very steps I passionately pursued without the crutch of AA or the 12 steps, anchoring me in my own sobriety journey. To access these free treasures, simply text the word GIFT, that's G-I-F-T, to 1-855-649-6196. Once more, that's the word GIFT, G-I-F-T, to 1-855-649-6196. And I'm overflowing with gratitude and love for each and every one of you. Thank you.